All right, if you have your Bibles, please uh, turn with me back to Epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. All right. Scripture says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, or that actually the Greek says your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Um, thank you that you've given it to your church. We thank you that you've given it specifically to us. You've given it to us in our language where we are able to read it and understand it and know what your will is for your people. Lord, help us now to rightly divide the word of truth, get our human weaknesses, get our flesh out of the way, get your message across to your people. We may live in a way that is pleasing to you. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we talked about how we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That we are to be humble, meek, patient, forbearing with one, uh, with one another, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We talked about the fact that we are all members of the body of Christ, and that when He saves us into His church, He gifts each one of us in some way for the building up of the body. Just as the human body is composed of many members which serve to accomplish the various necessary functions for the health of the whole body, 
The church is composed of many members, which are gifted in various ways to serve the various functions that are necessary for the health and the growth of the whole. In this way, the body builds itself up in love. Now Paul moves from how we walk in a manner worthy of our calling and contrasts it with our former manner of life. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The thoughts we think dictate the deeds we do. Paul spent much of this letter directly addressing the Gentile believers in Ephesus. He labored to show how God had called them out of the world and into his own family. It shows that since their calling was real, their walk or manner of life should be consistent with and worthy of that calling. Now he moves back in time, as it were. He says to the Gentile believers, prior to your calling, you lived as the Gentiles around you lived. You were just like them. Your way of thinking was futile, and your manner of living proved it. Paul fleshes out what he means with this statement by saying the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So the futility of their thoughts comes from the fact that their understanding of reality is darkened. That is, they do not understand the most basic questions of existence, and therefore they are unable to rightly understand how we ought to live or even <coughs> exist. How did we get here? Why are we here? They were and Honestly, they continue to be unable to rightly answer questions like these. The analogy of a building is one that comes up in Scripture a lot, and I believe it's applicable here. For a building to stand, it needs a solid foundation. If the building is built on a weak foundation, it might stand for a time. But eventually, disaster will strike and the building will collapse. Likewise, we need a solid foundation when we build our worldview. Otherwise, when challenges come along, our worldview will not be able to withstand them. and We will fall. Our Creator gives us such a solid foundation that we need. He reveals the answer to these questions through His written word. Scripture says, all things, which includes us, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. So we exist for Christ. And similarly, the most basic and foundational question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, the one that the rest of the catechism is built on, it says this, question, what is the chief end of man? Or to say that, say that another way, what is the main reason for the existence of mankind? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why we exist. Unregenerate Gentiles are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. 
Of course they are alienated from the life of God. Of course they are. Scripture tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Christ is the wisdom of God. And Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through Him. Of course people who are separated from Christ would be separated from the life of God and full of ignorance. As one Bible commentator puts it, this phrase, the life of God, refers to, quote, both the principle of life and the operations of it, end quote. In other words, it is a restatement of what Paul was meaning two chapters ago when he referred to the Gentile believers' former manner of life when he said they were dead in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked. They were spiritually dead and they lived their physical lives like they were spiritually dead. Alienated from the life of God. But again, the reason for them being alienated from the life of God is their ignorance. Ignorance we once shared before we were regenerate. The Greek word that is being translated ignorance is agnoia. To give you an idea of what is being conveyed by this word, listen to how it's used in two other places in the New Testament. In Acts 3, we read of Peter confronting the Jews in Solomon's portico where he tells them, you killed the author of life. You did it. But then he says, now brothers, I know that you acted in agnoia, ignorance, as did also your rulers. Again, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 13-15, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Our, our thoughts have to be prepared, and this leads to action. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will, be, uh, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former Agnoia, ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So you see, this is not ignorance in the sense of a mere lack of knowledge. This, is, uh, this ignorance is something that is tied to our passions. This is willful moral blindness. Or to put it in a, in a more blunt term, this is pure stupidity is what this is. <clears throat> the root issue of this ignorance, blindness, alienation from God is due to their hardness of heart. Everything we've talked about that they are up to this point, there's your root issue right there. They're hard-hearted. Elsewhere, Scripture tells us that unregenerate man has a heart of stone, which is deceitful above all things. Because we are the fallen sons of Adam, we are conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity, as the psalmist writes. And as Paul stated earlier in this epistle, unregenerate men are dead in trespasses and are by nature children of wrath. What else would we expect from someone who has a heart of stone? Consider the metaphor for a moment. The heart is the organ that, plump, uh, that pumps the lifeblood to the rest of the body, right? Take out the heart, and you'll kill the body. Now think about this 
think to yourself for a moment, how could a heart of stone perform this task of pumping the lifeblood to the rest of the body? If the heart is hardened, it can't beat, which means it will not be able to pump the blood that is needed by the rest of the body. A person with such a heart would be dead. So, it is this way with unregenerate man. Those who are spiritually dead. The center of his affections, his heart, is cold and hard. He hates the things of God. Manifesting, he is alienated from the life of God. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Since those with hearts of stone do not find their joy in God, since they are willfully ignorant, blind in their understanding, since they are alienated and hostile to the life of God, it makes sense that their hearts would become more and more hardened, callous to the things of God. It makes sense that those who find no joy in the Creator, and in fact are hostile to the Creator, would seek their joy in the perversion of what He's created. They willfully spurn the wisdom of God. In Proverbs 8, wisdom personified, which is Christ, by the way, says, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from Yahweh. He who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. The spiritually dead love death. This has manifested itself in every non-Christian culture throughout the entire history of mankind. It was true of the culture in Ephesus when Paul was writing it is certainly true of Western culture today. We observed this here last year. And I at least want to make a mention of it again this year. Because I think we should show, kind of what we do in our uh, prayer for the persecuted church, we should show solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer persecution. It should be as if we are there in chains with them, provided they're in chains. This is just potential change, but the third Sunday in January has been deemed by the Liberty Coalition of Canada as Biblical Sexuality Sunday. That explains the Old Testament New Testament reading, okay? This is because of an evil law that went into effect in Canada in January of last year, which criminalizes so-called conversion therapy. The law defines conversion therapy as, quote, I'm quoting this directly from the law, a practice treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. Change a person's gender identity to cisgender. And if you don't know what that is, that just simply means that you identify as what God made you. Your biological gender. That's all that means. Change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Repress or Reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. Repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity. Or, repress a, or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. It criminalizes telling people that they are what they are. It criminalizes telling people you are what God made you to be. 
In other words, a faithful pastor, or even a faithful Christian, he doesn't have to be a pastor, a faithful Christian who provides biblical counseling regarding sexuality to someone experiencing something that is real, gender dysphoria, that is real. Someone experiencing that, that receives biblical counsel, the one counseling them could be guilty of violating this law. And being found guilty of violating this law could carry a sentence of up to five years in prison for telling the truth. Unless we'd be tempted to think, well, we don't have to worry about such things here because that's Canada, those are that's crazy people, that's Canada. We live in the, the land of the free, right? Well, <clears throat> about a month ago, the uh, extremely, incredibly misnamed Defense of Marriage Act was passed here into law. And this law requires that all 50 of the U.S. Uh, states must recognize same-sex civil marriages as valid. That is, it requires the states to recognize as good what God calls evil. It requires the states to call what God says is not marriage, marriage. That's here. It's not in Canada. That's here. And of course, I could, I could bring up all kind of examples. I just brought up those examples because this is Biblical Sexuality Sunday, so I just thought that'd be a good example. Okay. Um, this is... Recent examples of what Paul is saying here, though, about unregenerate Gentiles. All of those who hate God and his wisdom love death. Do those who practice the things that are just mentioned here produce life? No. You don't produce life from mirror relationships. Okay? That text we read in Genesis earlier. God created a corresponding opposite to Adam. That's what that Hebrew phrase help me. It's a corresponding opposite. Man is not meant to be with man. Man is meant to be with woman. Woman is meant to be with man. This is God's good design. This is God's blessing to us for the creation of life. And this is going to tie in next week because next week is Sanctity of Life Sunday. So we're going to try to, Lord willing, all those all together next week because the text we're hoping to hit next week actually covers those topics right there in the text. So um, I'm going to try to ball those up together next week. But since this is that Sunday marking that issue, I wanted to bring it up. And I think it actually is a good example of what Paul's talking about here. Those unregenerate Gentiles walk as their father, the devil. They walk after the prince of the power of the air. Since he who rebelled against God was unable to touch the Almighty, he did the next best thing by attacking his images. At the end of the path, for all who follow the devil and seek to find their joy and sensuality, at the end of that path is death. The way Paul puts it in his epistle to the Romans, he says, although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. You saw that, right? In Ephesians. Became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. See this? Heart thinking? Pattern. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he goes into this list of things that ought not to be done. But he skips down and at the end of that list he says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Unregenerate man. Quite frankly, not just Gentiles either. So to summarize, unregenerate man, here specifically Gentiles, are hard-hearted, futile in their thinking, blind or darkened in their understanding, willfully ignorant, alienated from the life of God, causing them to be the willful slaves of sensuality and every kind of impurity unto death. That was our state before we were in Christ. Lest we look to them with some sort of smirk, thinking we're better than them. If not for Christ, that would be us. But, that's always so good in Scripture when you get to that but. You get to this bad news, and then there's but. But, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old man which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the reversal of the corruption wrought by sin in man. We know from other places in Scripture and even our own experience, frankly, that the only way we can be cured of our hard-heartedness, the only way we can be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life is by the powerful working of God alone. He must remove the heart of stone. He must give us a new heart of flesh. He must raise us up to newness of life in Christ. He must write His law of love on our hearts. We don't do that. We receive it, but we don't do it. But once God has done that, once we have experienced that birth from above, that new life in Christ, we are in a position to be cured of our ignorance, 
How are we cured the ignorance of our former manner of life? Well, the text says we learn Christ. We hear about Christ. We are taught in Christ. The way ignorance is alleviated is through teaching and learning. I don't know. Somebody got to teach me. Now I do know and I'm not ignorant. See? In this case, it is not merely a one-time affirmation of the gospel. Okay? It's, not just, it's not just the initial uh, cry out to God. It's not just the initial moment of salvation. Okay? It certainly encompasses that. It's more than that. This is a completely new life in Christ. Not just a moment in time. It's a new life forever. Yes, we are justified by faith alone. In Christ alone. Apart from our works or any other claims of merit inherent to us. But, once we have been born from above. Once we have received the gift of faith that joins us to Christ. Once we have been justified on the basis of His righteousness alone, we are to walk as He walked. I know I've talked about this a lot here. But it's because it's something that God's impressed on my heart. Something that's important to me. And I think it's something that's important to Him because He put it in His scriptures. The Great Commission is not to go make converts. Great Commission is go make disciples. Yes, yes, we have to confront the lost with their sin and the wrath of God that abides on them apart from Christ. Yes, we need to give them the good news of what God has done in Christ to save His people. We need to declare the gospel message of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that's only the beginning. That is the saved from what? There's also a saved unto what? There's a future, not just a past. Jesus said we are to be taught as his disciples and we are to teach other disciples to what? To observe all that I have commanded you. This is not law-keeping for the sake of being righteous in ourselves or even necessarily to prove that we're saved, whether to ourselves or to others. That may be the effect. It may prove those things, not necessarily even for that reason. Rather, it is the lifestyle that necessarily results from receiving a new heart with new affections. When we are born from above, born again, it is our joy and our heart's true desire that we would learn and carry out our Father's will, and that we would learn and carry out our Savior's commands. It's a joy to us. It's what we want to do. We long to do it because we love God. And as the Apostle John writes, for this is the love of God. We keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. When we try to keep the law as a means of somehow meriting favor with God, they're so burdensome that it crushes us. We can't do it. But once we're saved, once we receive the righteousness of Christ, once we are liberated from the law as a slave master, now it is a lamp unto our feet. Now it is something that it is our joy as sons of the Father. We want to please our Father 
we rejoice to keep his law. We delight in his law, the way the psalmist says it. And so Paul is calling the Ephesians to forsake their former manner of life and live as they had learned and been taught in Christ. Now notice the contrast that Paul brings out with respect to truth and deceit here. He says the truth is in Christ, but the means or the root of corruption belonging to your former manner of life was your deceitful desires. Not just your desires, your deceitful desires. James explains, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Is this not how our first parents fell into sin? The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, deceitfully appealed to their desires even before their natures were corrupted. How much worse is our condition now that we inherit a corrupted sin nature from the moment we're conceived? James further explains, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In contrast, Christ is the way, truth, and the life. When, uh, where Adam failed, Jesus has succeeded. Though he was created in the image of God, Adam failed to truthfully image God. He sinned. He did what was not righteous. He did what was contrary to God. In a sense, by his actions, he lied about God. He's supposed to be imaging him. Images are supposed to follow the one that's imaging them. It's the, the true deal, right? He did the opposite. He lied about God by his actions. We do the same thing, though. Don't point the finger at him. When we sin, we do the same thing. Not so with Jesus, though. Scripture says Christ is the image of the invisible God. And he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus himself, who said, God is spirit, also said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The man, Jesus Christ, perfectly, faithfully, and truthfully images the invisible God. He makes visible that which is invisible. This was why he became man. Prior to his crucifixion, he said to Pilate, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Not only is Jesus the one who declares the truth, he is the very embodiment of truth. He says, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. And I came that they, particularly His sheep, may have life and have it more abundantly. This is why Paul says that those in Christ should put off the old man with its deceitful desires and put on the new man 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This brings us back to this idea. We are the Father's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. No longer should we walk in the futility of our formerly unregenerate minds. Rather, in Christ we should be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That's what the text says. No longer should we walk in the deceitful desires of our flesh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Rather, we as new creatures in Christ should be imitators of Christ, seeking as best we can this side of glory to truthfully image our Creator as we were created to do. He gives us new hearts with truly righteous desires which leads to truly righteous living. Condition of our hearts, God's our thinking, and our thinking God's our actions, our manner of life whether that be in sin or righteousness. In Christ, God takes away the heart of stone and gives us new hearts of flesh, which he has written on our hearts. Law on our hearts. He replaces our futile thoughts and spiritual blindness by giving us the mind of Christ, in which is all the treasures of true wisdom. Whereas we, are, uh, we were once alienated from the life of God, he brings us near to participate in the abundance of life that God gives to his people. And our regenerate hearts, renewed minds, and righteous desires cause us to walk in the good works which the Father prepared beforehand that we should do them for his glory. Not our own. This brings us back to the idea of recapitulation or the renewal of humanity in Christ. Scripture says, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And again it says, those whom the Father foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Through Christ, God is restoring his image in his people. He is remaking humanity to be what it was always intended to be, a perfect reflection or image of himself. I shared these quotes from the ancient church fathers with you on Christmas, but listen to these again. <clears throat> Irenaeus of Lyons explained the concept this way. He said, quote, For it was for this end that the word of God was made man. He who was the son of God became the son of man. Man, having been taken into the word and receiving the adoption, might become the son of God. For by no other means could we have attained to incorruptibility and immortality unless we had been united to incorruptibility and immortality. But how could we be joined to incorruptibility and immortality unless first incorruptibility and immortality had become that which we also are? So that the corruptible might be swallowed up by incorruptibility and the mortal by immortality. We might receive the adoption of sons. And in his work on the incarnation, 
which I highly recommend, by the way. The great defender of the deity of Christ, Athanasius of Alexandria, said this, quote, What else could God possibly do, being God, but renew his image in mankind, so that through it men might once more come to know him? And how could this be done, say, by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior, Jesus Christ? The word of God came in his own person because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate man after the image, end quote. In Christ Jesus, we are a renewed humanity, created after the likeness of God, which means that when we live according to our new natures, we live in true righteousness. Notice the difference. Deceitful desires, true righteousness and holiness. Since God is holy, His true images are holy as well. That being said, practical reality is this. We know the struggle between the old man and the new man continues in this life. Largely what we've been talking about is the ideal, an ideal that we will one day achieve in glory. And when I say we achieve it, really God achieves it for us in glory. But until that time, the struggle is real. <laughs> Otherwise, what need would Paul have to write these things other than perhaps for our encouragement? No, it was necessary that he write these things because there was sinful conflict in the church at that time. For example, there were Judaizers with enough influence that even Peter, the Apostle Peter, cowered to them at one point. And just as Paul confronted his fellow Apostle about that, he confronts the remaining sin in the Ephesian believers and, by extension, in us. Since we are a new humanity in Christ, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, we have put away falsehood. That belongs to the old man. We've put it away. It should be as good as dead to us. That further means everyone in the church is free in love to speak the truth with his neighbor. We are members one of another. I'm not going to spend a lot of time today talking about how we are members of one another. I think we've seen quite clearly how that's the case in previous sermons in this epistle. Uh, we are fellow citizens. We are fellow heirs. We are one man. We are one temple. We are one church. We are one body of Christ. And we are one family of God. That's what we've seen in this epistle so far. We have covered all these things. This one epistle halfway through. What I want to make sure is understood is that there is some heavy stuff for how we treat each other that is about to follow that verse. To be perfectly clear, in the ultimate sense, Christ taught us that our neighbor is anyone who is a fellow image bearer of God, whether they're regenerate or not. Okay? We are to love humanity. Alright? That's not what Paul's meaning here, though. 
He is specifically talking about those within the church. Those are the neighbors he's talking about here. Okay? Everything that follows the rest of the chapter is how we ought to treat each other in the church. This is how believers ought to treat other believers. Okay? The apostle says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Last week I mentioned the practical fact that sometimes we get on each other's nerves. True. We do. Sometimes I probably get on your nerves. There's no way you could have got on my nerves. <laughs> Maybe sometimes it goes deeper than that though. Okay? Maybe sometimes, whether intentional or not, maybe we just flat out hurt each other's feelings. Maybe it goes beyond annoyance. Maybe we actually hurt each other. Maybe. Holy Spirit, through Paul, says it's okay to be angry at the offense. But, there's a caveat. It is okay to be angry provided that you do not sin yourself. If you sin in response to your brother's sin, both of you, as well as the entire body, will be worse off because of it. Again, we are members, one of another. Whether you realize it or not, there's a lot riding on how you respond when your brother offends you. You have a lot of responsibility. So do I. Furthermore, we are responsible for addressing the offense quickly. Do not even let the sun go down on your anger. Do not allow it to swell and fester until you blow up on your brother. Or maybe even you blow up on another brother who had nothing to do with the original offense. Because you've let it fester and fester and fester. And now things that maybe wouldn't have annoyed you, maybe they do. And you blow up. Don't do that. Handle the issue quickly. When we allow our anger to cause us to sin, or when we uh, uh, allow uh, our anger to fester until we blow up and cause further division, the person who wins in that scenario is the devil. I'm going to say this, frankly, you are a new creature made after the image of Christ. Do not be a pawn of the devil to do damage to the body of Christ. R.C. Sproul once said this, quote, Sin is not simply making bad choices or mistakes. Sin is having the desire in our hearts to do the will of the enemy of God. Righteous anger is good. There are times we ought to be angry because there's injustice and it should make us mad. Make Jesus mad. It should make us mad. Righteous anger does not cause us to lose our self-control. Scripture says, whoever is slow to anger. doesn't say that they never get angry. It says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Paul continues, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let the socialist become a capitalist. That's not exactly what Paul is uh, saying there. 
Although I do believe that biblical ethics would require that. Uh, yeah, I, I do. Um, Paul is saying, let the one who formerly stole the wealth of others, perhaps impoverishing them along the way, right? Because they're rich. We don't know. Maybe all they had. Those who stole the wealth of others, let such a one labor doing honest work to create his own wealth. Let him do this so that he who formerly unjustly took away the wealth of others may share his own wealth with those who need it now. John Stott comments, he says, quote, instead of sponging on the community as thieves do, he will start contributing to it. None but Christ transforms a burglar into a benefactor. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, for only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The Greek word translated here as corrupting could be properly translated as rotting also. Rotting. The idea is one of breaking down or decaying, if you will, rotting those who hear. This is clearly seen by the contrast. Only speak those things which are good for building up those listening to you. Words that impart grace to your hearers. That does not mean we can never be stern or frank or to the point. It's not what that means. The man who wrote this, this portion of scripture under divine inspiration also wrote on another occasion, also under divine inspiration in that case, I wish those who unsettle you, that is Judaizers who taught that circumcision was necessary for salvation, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. How does that build up and impart grace? Paul was passionate against this injustice, these lies that were being told to God's people. He loved God's people and he hated the enemies of God who would take them astray. That's how he was calling them back to the truth in love. But that was pretty straightforward language. Would you not agree? <laughs> no, the idea is that instead of saying things that could potentially cause corruption to the hearers, we should speak the truth in love. That could mean words of encouragement. <laughs> Or constructive criticism. Regardless, the intent, the desire of our hearts should be to build up the hearer and not tear them down in any way. Okay, we're, we're doing this for the benefit of who's speaking with us. Whatever fits the occasion. That's how we got to take it. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now that's pretty serious. Grieving the Holy Spirit of God. How would we do that? We do that by disobeying what is in the next verse. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Last week, we saw there is one body, the church, and it is enlivened by the one spirit who is the Holy Spirit. Right? Okay. Picture this, if you will. Imagine your body is bound on a table by ropes on all four of your limbs. 
Now imagine those four ropes start pulling your limbs in opposite directions, essentially trying to pull your body apart. It's going to cause your spirit to grieve within you, right? That's the idea. Likewise, the Holy Spirit grieves when we allow the sin which belongs to our former manner of life to come in and cause division in the body of Christ. At the root of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice is pride, which has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. For by grace, y'all have been saved through faith. And this is not y'all's own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And just as an aside real quick, look up yallversion.com. This is a very helpful tool for seeing whether the yous in the modern translations are supposed to be singular or plural. So I actually got that y'all translation. I got actually got, I didn't make that up. Um, anyway, that's just an aside. What this means is that every one of us has been saved through faith. It was not something that any of us were able to accomplish ourselves or even accomplish ourselves with God's help. No. Um, it was fully the gift of God. So there is not one of us who has room for boasting. And if you wish to argue that your superior advancement in sanctification gives you something to boast about, first, <clears throat> you need to go back and question whether you really are that far advanced in your sanctification because, wow, really? Pretty prideful, huh? Um, but next, after that, also, every one of us is the workmanship of the Father created in Christ Jesus for good works, which the Father prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, did you do the work? No, God did. Did you create yourself in Christ Jesus? No, God did. Did you devise the good works that you perform? Again, no, God did. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Even the good works we do, we have to give glory to God. Furthermore, that brother toward whom you are bitter, wrathful, angry, clamoring, slandering, and toward whom you are full of malice, that brother is one of God's beloved sons from whom Christ died. How dare you not love what your father loves? How dare you not love those for whom your Savior died? How dare you grieve the Holy Spirit who sealed you both for the day of redemption? Rather, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, not hard-hearted, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. As God and Christ forgave you. I'm about to bring it to the close. Everybody breathe a sigh of relief. I'm about to bring it to the close. Did not our Lord teach us to pray? Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Does he not command his disciples? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And this is how. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And the Apostle John writes, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
he does not uh, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must, it is not optional, he must also love his brother. Those who love God love love the things that he loves. So what that amounts to. God loves his people, even the ones with whom it is hard for you to get along. He loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son that those believing in him would not perish but have eternal life. If God was willing to forgive us through Christ, how much more we ought to forgive each other. May the Lord grant it to us that day by day we would put to death the old man and put on the new. And he continue what he has started in renewing us after the image of Christ until the day of its completion. We are glorified and we are in heaven with him. May we walk in true righteousness and holiness for his great name's sake. And may we love each other as the triune God has loved us. Would you pray with me, please? <clears throat> Father in heaven above, again we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. And we are thankful for everything we've discussed here this morning. We're thankful that you did not leave us in our former estate, in the futile way that we used to live, but in love. You sent your son to live the righteous life we continue, even now. We fail to live. And to die the death we deserve to die. That we may become sons of God. We may become the righteousness of God. That we may be renewed after the image of Christ. That we may rightly fulfill what we were created to do. Image our creator. Help us to practically do that in the church. First and foremost, help us to do that in the church. Also help us to do that as we go out into a world that is still walking in those futile ways. Help us to love them by telling them the truth in love, calling them to repent and trust in the Savior and to obey all his commands after that. For all this in Jesus' name.